my name is Marie Leconte. Welcome to the podcast episode I have come to call The Bromker, but which I suppose you know better as The Bunker. As you may have guessed, this episode will focus on Birmingham. Either ignored or unfairly maligned, England's second city hasn't always had the best relationship with the rest of the country. I'm actually ashamed to admit that it took me seven years of living in London to finally take the train and go see it for myself. Well, to go to the Conservative annual party conference, but it's better than nothing. Conveniently, the Tories' long and weird relationship with Birmingham is what we're here to talk about today. Richard Vinnan is a professor of history at King's College London and the author of Second City, Birmingham and the Forging of Modern Britain. Hi Richard, thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, so your book came out last year, and the year before that, England fell in love with Jack Grealish at the Euros. So it's fair to say it's been a good few years for your hometown. Which of those two events would you say was the best for the city's image, in your kind of objective opinion? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I must admit, until you very kindly um, sent me a list of your potential questions, um, I'd never heard of Jack Grealish. So one of my weaknesses is um, not being a great follower of football. So um, obviously, I think my book is the most important uh, event, although I just stress. Uh, my book's not meant to be a contribution to the city's image. I mean, I think Birmingham's an important place, but you don't have to like it uh, to be interested in it. Fair enough. I personally really like it. And I'm not just saying that because I'm doing the podcast with you. Um, but so more seriously, you, you wrote this book because, as you explained, no one had really done a proper history of Birmingham in recent times, which seems quite mad. So why do you think that was the case? I think it's partly because Birmingham's seen as a kind of rather unfashionable place, uh, partly because the British generally are remarkably kind of London-centric, so histories of Britain tend to be written from the centre outwards. I think it's partly because other cities seem very identified with some very specific kind of story, you know, a story of being a port city or something like that, story of being, I don't know, the archetypal city of the kind of Marxist view of the, of the um, Industrial Revolution, the way that Manchester is. So I think in those ways, Birmingham sort of slightly slips between the cracks. No, that makes sense. And so actually, because you said, you know, people don't have to like it, but they should probably care. But so why should they care about Birmingham and its history? Well, I think they should care partly because it's the second biggest city in England, partly because it's an exemplary city in certain ways. So it's an exemplary city in the Victorian period because it's seen as a great kind of demonstration of what municipal government can do. It's an exemplary city because it's a city that's particularly free from aristocratic influence, from the influence of the established church, from lots of things that we think of as the kind of dominant features of especially 19th century Britain. And then, more importantly in some ways, in the 20th century, it exemplifies a certain pattern of kind of mass industrialization. So it's the big city of the production line, the big city of car manufacture, and the big city of at one time, sort of the period after the Second World War, 30 years after the Second World War, the big city of prosperity and full employment. And that's a time we now tend to look back on with some nostalgia. And Birmingham's quite revealing in that sense. So in lots of ways, Birmingham is a place which made life better for the working classes. But it also exemplifies all sorts of problems that were generated by that period of kind of very rapid, dramatic growth. So what I found fascinating about the book is that Birmingham just doesn't have a set identity and has never had one. So both in terms of architecture and the physical city, um, but also in terms of what it represents and what it stands for. So on the first point, you talk in the book about W.H. Warden visiting in 1967 for the first time in 30 years and noting that, I quote, they seem simply to have cleared away the whole thing and started again. 
Um, and elsewhere, you mentioned Herbert Manzoni, which is such a great name, by the way. Uh, he was the city's architect, and he said, I quote again, I have never been very certain as to the value of tangible links to the past. They're often more sentimental than valuable. That's an attitude that seems very different from a lot of the places in Britain. Where do you think that mindset came from? Well, I think it comes partly just from the fact that Birmingham does change a lot. So Birmingham expands. So there's a lot of architectural change. So I suppose in my lifetime, the Birmingham Central Library has been pulled down and rebuilt three times. And partly there's much less of a sense of kind of a fixed past in Birmingham. So I'm sitting in my office in the Strand in London now. And, you know, if I walk a bit east of my office, I could walk into the city of London. I'd be in a street network that has existed since the Middle Ages. I could walk a bit west and I'd be into Westminster, where, again, you know, I'd be surrounded by buildings that have existed for a long time. It's very hard to find that kind of area in Birmingham. No, so that all makes sense. But I, I wonder if there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing here, because looking at the second point from the earlier question, it's fair to say that Birmingham has also never been set politically in one way or another. Mm-hmm. So you quote historian G.M. Young in the book describing the city in the 19th century as, I quote, experimental, adventurous, diverse, where old radicalism might one decade flourish into lavish socialism, in another into pugnacious imperialism. How did that come about? Like, were, were Brummies fickle or just free-minded or both? <laughs> I don't think they're particularly fickle. What changes in Birmingham is partly in the 19th century to do with one man. So that's Joseph Chamberlain, who certainly is a kind of extraordinary figure in the convulsions of his political life. So partly what GM Young is talking about is Chamberlain's capacity to transform Birmingham. Partly, I think Birmingham is less tied down than than some areas of the country because uh, it doesn't have a, a deeply rooted kind of deferential politics rooted around the established church or rooted around um, families that have been established for a very long time. So I think that perhaps gives it greater capacity for change. But then also there's a whole set of new changes that then come in the 20th century, partly with the decline of the influence of the Chamberlains. Well, actually, so on on this very note, the dynamic we've kind of been talking about has also been playing out in electoral politics. In its first 50 years of parliamentary representation in the 19th century, the city only briefly elected one single Tory MP. Then, by 1937, every single Birmingham MP was a Conservative. Then in 1945, just eight years later, the Labour Party won 10 out of the 13 Birmingham seats. Um, So between the wars, the Times described the city as, I quote, an inviolate citadel of conservatism, but it's now got some of the safest Labour seats in the country. So again, how do we explain those quite wild sort of electoral swings? Well, I think we explain it partly by this particular Chamberlain moment. So this is Joseph Chamberlain, the the father of Neville and Austin Chamberlain. Um, Chamberlain himself becomes not exactly a conservative. He would always describe himself as a unionist. And Chamberlain also... I think regards himself also as a radical and sees radicalism as partly something that kind of transcends existing political identities. His sons, who also go on describing themselves as unionists, although they are effectively conservatives, are much more kind of conventional figures and work much more within the established conservative party. They are so successful in the interwar period, partly because of the Chamberlain name, but also partly because a group of very powerful industrialists support conservatism in Birmingham, uh, and particularly the car factories are centres of quite ruthless kind of anti-union activity in the interwar period. So Herbert Austin, particularly the, the founder of the Austin Works, is a conservative MP, but also someone who imposes a lot of discipline on his workers. 
and makes life very difficult for trade union activists and therefore undermines a lot of the kind of basis of what might have been uh, Labour Party strength. I think all that changes very dramatically with the Second World War. So um, one point about the Second World War is it suddenly makes the working class in Birmingham very much stronger. So Birmingham, it becomes a place where, as war regulations are set in place, workers can't move, so they're tied to their factories. But that also means that employers are tied to them, so workers can't be sacked, um, Mm. which means that suddenly the trade unions acquire more power. Uh, And then also, the whole country swings Labour in 1945, but Birmingham swings Labour in a particularly uh, marked fashion. Uh, I think then, curiously enough, the moment when Birmingham becomes most Labour is associated with Tony Blair. It's a very Blairite city. Um, And it's, in that context, a bit strange because people often talk as if Birmingham represented, you know, sort of absolute, um, solid, uh, provincial England against metropolitan fashionableness. And therefore, it's sometimes presented as if it should be a city of the kind of Brexit conservatism uh, Mm. that we now think of as so important. And I don't think it is that at all. Um, I think it's a a city which is now probably more Labour than it's ever been before. The Tories have a special relationship with the city, which is fascinating in itself. So, Because Birmingham was actually a very radical city for a long time. So the Birmingham Political Union fought against the Duke of Wellington, who was obviously a Tory, mm-hmm. in order to bring about the Reform Bill of 1832. But at the same time, it's a city that likes thinking of itself as self-made and business-orientated. And Brummies were always quite unashamed in their pursuit of wealth. So when Alexis de Tocqueville visited in the 19th century, he wrote that the people of Birmingham live like, I quote, they must make their fortunes today and die the next day, which slightly feels like a sort of very early version of the 50 Cent song. Um, moving on, so like, can you talk a bit about the party's relationship with the city quite specifically? So I'm sure Chamberlain will uh, come up, but also um, more broadly. So I think prosperity doesn't automatically make people into conservatives and kind of support for being self-made doesn't automatically make them conservatives. Because, of course, Chamberlain, actually, when he's a businessman, uh, he's very successful. Joseph Chamberlain is a liberal. Uh, He really joins, moves towards an alliance with the conservatives um, as he moves out of business. And the Cadbury family, of course, another great successful Birmingham family, chocolate manufacturers are until well into the 20th century, liberals and occasionally supporters of the Labour Party, in fact. I think also that working class prosperity is a very particular feature of Birmingham. And also it's a kind of city that's unashamed of prosperity. There's a marvellous description in David Lodge's novel, um, Changing Places, about Birmingham, in which uh, an American academic comes from California to Birmingham, which, of course, initially he hates. And he comes to rather like it when he sees the car workers in the late 1960s going to all the city centre hotels and insisting on spending their money there, regardless of how much the hotels put their prices up to try to keep them out. So I think, you know, (laughs) it's a city that's kind of unashamed of money in a way that's perhaps rather unusual in Britain. In terms of the Conservatives having a special relationship with it, I think the answer, as with lots of things about the Conservatives, is that they think they have a special relationship with it. So I think that derives especially from Joseph Chamberlain, the sense that Joseph Chamberlain was someone who got working class votes for a conservative government. I don't think, as I say, that for a lot of the time it has actually been a conservative city in terms of its 
electoral politics. Um, but so actually, so on this note, and on actually quite a bleak note, I think that we can't really talk about Birmingham's political history without talking about the election in 1964 in Smethwick, which is remembered as like what one of the most, if not the most racist election campaign ever run in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, so for listeners who may not know about it, the, one of the Tory candidate's slogans was, if you want an N-word for a neighbour, vote Labour. Um, and this was, you know, around the same time Enoch Powell, who's also who's also a Birmingham MP, uh, was in government. Um, Enoch Powell, who's not one of you know life's great social liberals either. So, is there something there? That, what 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 are I suppose the racial politics of Birmingham? Of again, clearly, it is a city that has had a lot of immigration, um, and is now very much to the left, intellectually speaking, at least. But you know, it clearly has this history of quite brutal and bleak conserv- you know, anti-immigration sentiment. Well. In some ways, it's not surprising that Birmingham is a great centre of racial tension in the 50s and 60s because the city is drawing in immigrants, so from Ireland, from the West Indies, from the Indian subcontinent, and it's drawing them in at a time when there's a huge demand for workers but quite a shortage of housing. So for those reasons, I suppose it's inevitable there's quite a lot of racial tension. You see this reflected even at national level, so there's a very notorious remark by Winston Churchill in January 1955 when he tells the cabinet that um, white Britain would be a good slogan. And he that conversation actually comes partly as a result of uh, an expression of concern from Birmingham Council about immigration. Um, I think, though, what one should say is, first of all, um, I hate to be fair to the Conservatives, but I will be fair to the Conservatives in this context in that actually they're not unique in expressing dubious views about race in the 50s and 60s. So, in fact, the Labour Party is also quite worried about immigration. Uh, Mm. Sometimes the Labour Party is as racist as the Conservatives during this period. The Conservative Party at a, a city level in Birmingham is often quite keen to kind of keep the lid on race. So they're not very heroic anti-racists, but they think race might be something dangerous to talk about. Um, And one should remember that Edward Boyle, who is the MP for Handsworth, and Handsworth, the constituency associated with the band Steel Pulse, with Steel Pulse's first album, Handsworth Revolution. So you might think Handsworth is like Brixton. It's like the epicentre of multicultural, but also left-wing urban Britain during this period. Handsworth actually has a Conservative MP, Edward Boyle, who is quite liberal on race up until the early 70s. Now, one of the things that's going on during this period is that there's a struggle within the Birmingham Conservative Party, uh, a struggle partly because conservatism is in decline in the city and therefore their electoral agents begin to blame immigration for that decline. They say either that white voters are moving out of their traditional constituencies or that white voters are aggrieved at immigration. But as I say, I don't think the Conservatives are the only ones expressing that view. Curiously enough, there are two different challenges within the Conservative Party to orthodoxy about race in the 1960s. So you get Powell's notorious Rivers of Blood speech in 1968, but you also get Ken Clark on the liberal wing of the Conservative Party, um, publishing with some of his colleagues a a little pamphlet called um, Race, a Birmingham View, in which he says we should talk about race, but we should talk about it from a liberal point of view, about how we facilitate uh, integration and so on in Birmingham. Uh, And both men are conscious that conservative leadership in Birmingham just wants to avoid talking about race at all. 
Hmm. No, this is... Um, well, I feel like heartening would definitely be stretching it. Um, <laughs> but this is less bleak than I thought it would be. Also, I, I should say, I meant to say earlier, I would like to apologise uh, for my pronunciation of smethic. Um, so, you know, every day is a school day. Um, but what defines actually a Birmingham Conservative today? So even if the links don't necessarily exist massively anymore, like what, what, what do they want to signal, I suppose, by anchoring their conservatism in Birmingham? Well, I think it means different things, really. So... All Conservatives, I think, like the idea of Birmingham because for the very reason that in some ways people sometimes sneer at Birmingham, the idea it's an unfashionable city, the idea that it's not London. So as Conservative Party tries to pitch themselves as a more plebeian, more populist party, I think Birmingham, for those reasons, is attractive to them. So I think actually Birmingham means different things to different Conservatives so that um, for all of them, there's an idea that it's a kind of real Britain, the kind of Angleterre profonde, to use um, one of your French words. <laughs> Thank you very um, much. Yeah. But this, of course, is always a bit of an illusion. So um, it implies that there's a single provincial England. I was very struck when I published my book that whenever I talked to kind of journalists and media people, they always said, can you make it about levelling up? And I always tried to explain that actually the point is that Birmingham is quite a prosperous city even now. Um, mm. And that on the whole, it suffered from levelling up in the 50s and 60s when people tried to move investment up north. So I think Birmingham does not quite fit into the standard kind of red wall narrative that the Conservatives often go in for. But seeing as I feel like we, we've spent a lot of time dwelling on the past here, which is something that famously Birmingham doesn't like doing. I mean, even the motto of the city is forward. Um, so looking forward then, what do you think Birmingham will look like in five or 10 or 15 years? Like, do you think it can reinvent itself again entirely, or is it now quite stuck in its ways? Oh, no, I think Birmingham is um, not stuck in its ways. I think Birmingham will never be, you know, the kind of shock city it was in the 19th or the early 20th century, partly because obviously the world is now full of cities that have a million or so people living in them. So in that sense, Birmingham is less special than it used to be. Um, but I think um, there are several things that, would make me very hopeful for Birmingham, one of which is that actually I think now it's a uniquely successful multicultural city. When I go back now, it's full of kind of Sikhs speaking with thick, brummy accents. Um, mm -hmm. So that, you know, I think it's a city where people have accepted immigration um, in a way that they conspicuously didn't in the early 1960s. Mm. Um, I think it's a prosperous city, particularly, in fact, in terms of a kind of culture and education. So one of the great distinctions between different areas of Britain now, it seems to me, is very simply whether they have universities and particularly whether they have very successful universities. And Birmingham has several universities uh, and particularly Birmingham University itself, which is a very distinguished university. And that then feeds into a whole thing of people going to university in Birmingham and then deciding to stay the university itself is a great kind of centre. I think it's one of the great transforming features of Edgbaston, which used, of course, to be the great conservative stronghold in Birmingham and is now a Labour constituency. And the other thing that's going to transform Birmingham is transport. So Birmingham has been the car city um, for much of the 20th century. But now the centre of Birmingham is pedestrianised, which is a mind-boggling change from when I was a child. Um, and the other thing, of course, that's going to transform it is HS2. So uh, links with London, links with the wider world are going to be uh, very much faster um, in the relatively near future. So I think all those things will transform it. Um, but also I'd say um, what I hope will transform it is um, 
people will just discover those bits of it that are attractive. So there are all sorts of things about Birmingham that nobody ever believes, like large parts of the city are actually very green. Um, mm. And um, uh, living in Birmingham doesn't feel quite like what people usually imagine um, this sort of grimy um, industrial city to be. Mm. Now, I would say I personally was neither here nor there about Birmingham until I spent uh, one in the jewellery quarter, which I think is now one of my favourite bits of like a city in Britain. It's just really uh, the, the vibes of the jewellery quarter is just really, really nice. Mm. Um, but no, so on that note, um, that was fascinating. Thank you so much, Richard Vinnan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeConte, and you were listening to The Bunker. The Bunker was presented by Marie LeConte, produced by Kasia Tomashevich. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn, lead producers Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, theme music by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.